Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 175. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino, my king, our father, our king, Lord, we ask that you will allow us to come once again and sit and learn of your words and of your truths and to soak in your spirit and to activate our minds to the topic. Um, Give us supernatural ability to retain that which we're learning. Give us a heart to do your will and um, the uh, forgiveness for when we fail you and fall short. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Welcome to Live Internet Studies once again. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. This is a study on Matthew 9, 14 through 17, Judaism v. Christianity. And we're going to finish up our look at Pastor John Piper tonight. So let's start right here where you can see on my screen where we left off. Uh, my own comments are these. Other than these few sermon examples, as far as I could find on his website, right, we're talking about Pastor Piper's comments on the Matthew 14 passage, uh, the Matthew 9, 14 through 17 passage. Um, other than the few examples that I uh, listed last week, uh, go back and listen to show number, um, either episode number, I believe it's uh, 20. Uh, uh, 26 through 30 in the set of five. Go back and listen to uh, last week's show, episode number 174. Um, Other than those examples, um, Pastor Piper actually doesn't have a lot to say either in criticism or and criticisms of or support of the Torah, making him perhaps, in my opinion, not the best example to present on this particular topic. So the, the wider topic for this commentary is Judaism versus Christianity, or Judaism v. Christianity. Is Judaism and Christianity, are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? Um, the idea of replacement theology and supersessionism gets brought up whenever we have discussions on this particular topic because Yeshua presents us with this kind of this anecdotal story or parable, as it's listed in Luke, um, about uh, three, three uh, um, topics in kind of packaged together as one. There's in the order, um, there's this question about fasting and then followed up um, and, and Yeshua gives his his own um, take on that about fasting the idea that Yeshua and his disciples aren't fasting but yet John's disciples are fasting and Yeshua tells his reasons why his disciples aren't fasting and then he follows that up immediately on the heels of that he follows the, his answer about fasting up with this anecdote or this parable as I mentioned Luke is the only one that uses the word parable um, the other two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, don't actually call it a parable, but Luke does. Um, he follows his example or his answer about the uh, fasting up with this uh, parable about um, wineskins. Um, I think it's the wineskins that comes first. And then he talks about an unshrunk cloth. I might have those two out of order, but either way, there's two more examples that follow after the fasting. There's an example of putting old wine into new wineskins and vice versa or something like that. Um, and I'm just giving you the general gist, so don't get too put off if I'm not giving you all the details. You can go back and read the, the um, parable on your own. And then he gives an example about sewing a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an 
a new onto an old garment, um, you know, like a patch. And in his examples, he explains why it's not the best thing to do. Um, what you might be trying to do, putting the patch onto an old cloth, or you know, a new patch onto an old cloth, an unshrunk piece of cloth, um, a patch, um, because then when you wash it, the the, the patch is going to shrink and it's going to tear away from the hole, make the garment worse. And or the example about the wine is that. Um, as wine ferments, it it creates gases, and if you pour the old uh, the new wine into old wineskins, well, then when it goes to expand, it's going to stretch those wineskins, and if they're already old, uh, I'm sorry, if they're if they're um, if they're not already expanded, those wineskins, well, then they're going to burst as they're trying to stretch some more, right? If they're old wineskins, they've already reached the limit of their stretching capacity, and, and you put more wine in there that's newer, that's that's expanding some more, it's going to burst. So what you put, what you do is back in that day, you would put new wines, new wine, or um, yeah, new wine into new wineskins, if I'm getting it right, and then that allows for the expansion process to stretch the skin and to um, allow the wine to ferment without burst the skin in the process and uh, the three examples kind of all fit together in most ex uh, explanations that I've heard Pastor Piper's no example no exception I'm sorry he puts all three of them together um, his final analysis if I remember is essentially that Yeshua is introducing a new kind of fasting um, basically rejoicing and it's because he um, he interprets the bridegroom in the um, example as himself, and uh, the bride, of course, is his followers, us included. Therefore, if since we've got this motif of a wedding, why would we fast when the bridegroom is here? Right? It's not a time for sorrow or you know being um, um, you know somber. Uh, the bridegroom has arrived. The time is now for rejoicing. So Yeshua is introducing kind of a new kind of, and I'm putting the word fasting in air quotes here, new kind of fasting according to John Piper. And that's because um, he's introducing the kingdom. He's bringing the kingdom past. He's he's introducing the kingdom of God to the people and bringing that long-awaited promise to Israel to very uh, fulfillment. And so that's a time of rejoicing, not time for fasting. And that part I actually agree with in the sense that Yeshua is bringing the kingdom, and they hadn't realized that, and that's a time for rejoicing, not time for fasting. Um, he went on to comment about um, the idea that in the grander scheme of things, when we talk about replacement theology, in the bigger picture, that it could be possible that Yeshua is also bringing a new way of worshiping God, a new approach to God that's different than Judaism. And that's where our study is asking the question, is Yeshua introducing a new way to approach God? Is Judaism out and Christianity going to replace Judaism as the new religion, the new way to approach God? And that's where this topic is getting a lot of mileage. In fact, as we're going to begin to look at our next um, example, gotquestions.org, we'll see that they, they do indeed interpret this parable in that very fashion about um, replacing something old with something new. So let's keep reading through my final comments here. Uh, truthfully, these are my comments. At first, I was going to simply dismiss Pastor Piper's comments on the Matthew passage as perhaps an exception to the normal way of understanding that passage. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just you can Google search the topic. Um, you can either use the verse reference, Matthew 9, 14 through 17, or you can Google search the term um, parable of new wineskins or parable of 
um, unshrunk cloth or something like that, one of those uh, terms. And once you get your uh, search uh, results in your Google or your whatever your browser, you know, DuckDuckGo or uh, uh, Yahoo search or Bing search or wherever you're searching, then take note of all the um, times that Christian commentators um, are going to speak the way that it's going to sound uh, like uh, the rest of my um, examples that I have in my commentary. So, um, in fact, indeed, if you if you have a if you can have a conversation with your own local pastor, or, or even some messianic rabbis are into this idea that um, Judaism had run its course by this time. So, um, you'd be surprised uh, how many uh, times that it's going to be explained the way that it's going to sound in my own commentary as well. I go on to say, after all, speaking about. Um, uh, Pastor Piper's comments. After all, before this current fast of mine, remember, I wrote my commentary right after I had completed my own personal fast uh, some years ago. After this, Before this current fast of mine, I had not really thought of the passage as teaching a replacement of the old Jewish system of relating to God. And so what I did is I decided to check a few more Bible commentaries, both Christian and Messianic, and I say what I found both surprised as well as saddened me. All right, so let's look at another example. This next example is the example from gotquestions.org, which I, I say it right up front, with all of these resources, I in and of themselves, the resources are great. I picked resources that I personally like, so there was a little bit of cherry picking going on. I didn't just like spin the wheel and, and randomly grab resources, nor did I pick resources that were somewhat obscure or not well-known. As far as I could determine, the website's and the resources that I'm highlighting, Dr. You know, Dr. P Piper, Pastor John Piper, gotquestions.org. We're going to look at some others, David uh, Guzik and uh, uh, Pastor um, John MacArthur and, and some others on the list that you're going to see. I picked resources that I think are somewhat well-known in Christian circles, especially in evangelical circles. And I picked uh, resources that not only do I like, but that I actually trust, generally speaking, when it comes to other Bible Topics. Got Questions is a great resource that I go to from time to time, and I really love their um, uh, format uh, and the fact that they hit a wide variety of topics, uh, much much more so than I could ever hit. Um, so it's a great resource if you ever get a chance. GotQuestions.org. Okay, so let's turn to them and see what they have to say. Here's my own comments first. Surely Pastor Piper could not be the only mature believer out there where a few of his sermons, whether knowingly or unknowingly, right? I, I always give that disclaimer because many pastors aren't really preaching what we messianics would identify as a replacement theology with all of its ramifications, with all of its ugliness as seen through the lens of being on the other side of that discussion, right? The Jewish people side, or being on the messianic side on the receiving end of a sermon that says, hey, guess what? God replaced your people with our people, right? That, does, that, doesn't, that doesn't land very um, pleasantly on the ears of Jewish people, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, and it doesn't land very uh, uh, receivedly on the, on the, you know, friendly, um, very well received on the side of many messianics who are really returning to a um, hebraically oriented lifestyle. But many pastors aren't 
really aware of the narration, of the dialogue, of the narrative that they're talking. Because it, they're kind of um, insensitive to the concept of the idea of replacing Judaism with Christianity, part and parcel, where the Torah of Moses is out, the law of Moses, I'm um, sorry, the law of Christ is in, um, you know, um, uh, uh, Israel's out, the church is in, all of that stuff. Many, again, many evangelical pastors or even Catholic or Orthodox believers who maybe adhere to this idea of replacement theology, supersessionism, dispensationalism, things like that, or, or fulfillment theology, whatever name it goes by, many of them aren't out to openly offend Jewish people. Um, they're, they're simply, they'll, they'll usually say something to the, along the lines of, well, the Bible has this built-in fulfillment idea anyway, right? God had already, always planned to bring Israel's purposes to a fullness, and Christianity is that fullness. Jesus was always going to fulfill the law. Moses had, had its kind of, as Dr. Um, Walter Kaiser puts it, a built-in obsolescence, right? It was always, it always had its limits, and people are going to turn to Paul in Galatians where he talks about um, the, the law had, was given until Right, uh, we can talk about that verse a different day, but um, I think it's around chapter four, uh, how Paul talks about how the law was given 430 years after um, the, the the Abrahamic promise, and then it it was it would um, um, be in place, and then he uses the word achri in the Greek, unt, or in the Hebrew achri till, or odd in the uh, odd in the Hebrew and achri in the Greek, which means until in most verse, most uh, translations. And so Christian pastors will point to that verse and say, aha, there it is, see? Paul is telling us that the law had its built-in limitations. It had a timeline. It had an expiration date on it. And so what are we saying that's any different, right? We're not preaching anything that's wrong, that's unbiblical, when we say that um, Jesus came to bring Judaism to an end. All right, so whether knowingly or unknowingly, I say, many pastors have actually contained an application in the form of replacement theology— borrowed from the Matthew passages. And again, it's not done um, really out of, um, in a kind of a mean temper or a, uh, a hurtful way or even really even a, an a, a openly boastful or prideful way. So I'm not terribly um, harsh on pastors when I have conversations about that. I, I just have to be aware that it's there. And typically, if, if I get a chance to dialogue with pastors, like in real, real like face-to-face -face, or even via email, then I'll say, have you ever considered the way um, that that theology impacts Jewish people? And they might say, well, there's very little we can do about it. It's God's program. I mean, if the Jewish people can't deal with it, then they need to take up their complaint with God himself. And I say, but aha, there are different ways of interpreting the passage, which I will get to in my commentary, which I think don't have to spell the end of the Mosaic Law. And really, in the end, folks, we're not talking about just a difference of interpretation. We're actually talking about a difference in seeing that there are other passages in the Tanakh, prophetic passages, that can't really support the idea that the Law of Moses has been done away with. So it's not just that I am offended because I'm Jewish, and therefore I think you should change your sermon, oh, Mr. Pastor, because you're offending my, me and my Jewish ears. No, no, no. It's, it's more than that. It's that replacement theology has been rotten to the core from the beginning because it disagree with, disagrees with what the prophets promised. So we'll get to that in time, all right? So I continue by saying, 
in an effort to gain a well-balanced sample from prevailing Christian views, what I decided to do when I wrote my commentary is I decided to jump online and query a popular Christian question and answer website, and here is their question and their answer reproduced in its entirety since it is quite short. So, uh, this is gotquestions.org, and here's the question, and here's their answer. And so, the question, first of all, says, What is the meaning of the parables of fasting at the wedding feast, the old cloth, and the wineskin? And I think what I will do first is, um, if they don't say it, then... Give me a moment. I'm going to go back and uh, back up into my own commentary, and I'm going to quote the... Um, the, the uh, the uh, scripture from um matthew from since that's the uh, the way i've got my commentary put together so bear with me so let's read the uh the parable or the uh um the the anecdote or the, the statement of yeshua starting at verse 14 of matthew chapter 9 here's what yeshua says then the disciples of john let me highlight all of that so you can see there we go then the disciples of john came to him asking why do we and the pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast. Verse 15. And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, pause right away and notice that Yeshua overlaps the meaning of fasting with mourning. Right? The question is, why do we and the Pharisees fast? The verb is fast. But in verse 15, Yeshua says, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn, right? So he um, interjects the word mourn there, and then he, later on the verse he says, but the, in his answer he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom take away from them, and then they will, he doesn't say the word mourn there, then he says the word fast. So by, in, by overlapping the word fast and mourn, we instantly see that by Yeshua's day, fasting and mourning had become... Um, conflated concepts, right? Overlapping ideas. Um, uh, uh, you know, co. Um, uh, what do we say? Um, they, they 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 were concepts that were were mixed in with one another. Even though the Torah didn't really say that mourning and fasting should be put together, right? When you fast, doesn't mean you have to mourn. Doesn't mean you're mourning. But by the first century, this this had become the kind of the tradition. And there's nothing really inherently wrong with that. But um, Yeshua uses this opportunity to begin to remind them that he himself, as the long-awaited Messiah of Israel's prophetic promises, he represents the coming of a time of joy into Israel's history, uh, a time where promises are going to be fulfilled and sin is going to be uh, um, dealt with, uh, atonement is going to be offered up, all right? Uh, even if many of the things that Yeshua said were cryptic, nevertheless, it doesn't change the reality of the fact that he is the very one that God promised he would send to Israel. He says in verse 16, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Right again, a lesson from real life that was more relevant to them than it is for us today. Right these days, if your clothes are worn out, most people don't patch them. They simply just uh, throw them away or hand them down to the younger brother or sibling, or um, you know, give them away to the goodwill or whatnot, or just you know, toss them out and they go out and buy new clothes. But back in this day, um, you didn't really do that so frequently. You went and started patching things. And so Yeshua gives an example there. And then in verse um, 17, he says, nor, right, so it's right on the heels 
of the of the clothing example, which means it's meant to be understood in the same kind of example or the same theme or the same lesson. Nor do people put new wineskins into old wineskin, new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, and again, back then, this is speaks to an, a modern or an everyday example that people would have been able to. Uh, easily follow. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins. It's this last sentence that um, uh, this last example about the wineskins, this is the one that really he drives it home for most Christian uh, evangelicals when it comes to the replacement. They put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. And so, as we're going to see from gotquestions.org, they're really drawing their um, uh, interpretation from the last two examples, the uh, the, the patch and the wineskin. Sorry. So that having been said, we read the, the verse. Uh, let's drop back down to um, uh, gotquestions.org and begin to read their answer. All right, so their question is, what's the meaning of these particular parables of fasting, wedding, wedding feast, old cloth, and the new wineskin? All right. Let's begin to read part of their answer. I don't know how much of this I'll read uh, tonight, um, but uh, we won't finish it. We might, we might finish it, we might not, but if not, we'll pick it up next week. Here's part of their answer. These parables found in, um, and they say found in Mark 2, 18 through 22. We already know it's found in Matthew 9, 14 through 17, and it's also found in the book of Luke, but I don't have the exact reference off the top of my head. But so just those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as far as I can tell, it is not found in the book of John. So they talk about the one in Mark. They say these parables found in Mark begin with a statement that the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting. Again, if you compare to all three stories, there's some minor differences between one story versus the other. Um, like in one version, it's the Pharisees that are included, like in Mark. Um, but I think in Matthew, uh, it's not the Pharisees' question. It's John's disciples, etc., etc. I'm not going to f- touch on those minor differences. I just want to catch the general gist of the sense of Yeshua's statements about the three um, anecdotal answers that he supplies. They go on to say, this is uh, gotquestions.org, the twice-weekly fast was a tradition adopted by the legalistic Pharisees at the time, even though the Mosaic Law prescribed only one fast on the Day of Atonement. And you can reference Leviticus uh, 16, 29 and 31 uh, for that. Interesting that atone, uh, that uh, gotquestions.org recognizes that fasting was not a commandment of the Torah, that's true, except for the Day of Atonement, which had already become a tradition to fast. So they didn't, they, the God questions didn't say this, but actually in Leviticus, um, we could say that God commanded Israel to fast on the Day of Atonement, but that's simply an interpretation of the word um, afflict your souls, the phrase that we translate into English, afflict your souls, on this particular day. It had become interpreted that this phrase, afflict your souls, meant fasting. But there are other ways to interpret the passage. It could mean some t- other kind of affliction. It doesn't have to mean affliction in the terms of diet or food, uh, restraining yourself or causing some form of discomfort to yourself on this particular day uh, in accordance with God's commands. But that's beside the point. That's a minor point that I'm not going to get into at the moment. Germane to our study is that it had already become a tradition among the Jewish people by Yeshua's day that fasting was something that was done at least by the sect of the Pharisees twice a week. And this actually later on influenced um, many um, Christians 
as they sought to distance themselves from Judaism as a failed religion earlier on, right? First, second, third, and fourth, coming to a head like in the fourth centuries with our whole councils uh, uh, d- where we decide, okay, we're not going to be um, uh, mistaken as Jews. But something that helped to er- very early on distinguish or differentiate Christianity as a religion from Judaism as a religion was their fast days. And as we read in the document known as the Didache, which is translated basically as the teaching. Um, it's a very early, uh, f- I think it's first century document that it's, is available. It was it was historically preserved. It's not a scripturally um, uh, uh, what we saw can- say canano- uh, uh, canonized form of document, right? So it's not something that would show up in any Bible. But you can do Google search for it. D i d a c h e. I believe it's spelling in the English. Didache. D i d a and um, in that document, it outlines the fact that the Christians had begun fasting on different days than the Pharisees in order to not be mistaken as Jews, right? And I think it even talks about that. Maybe I'll bring that up next week. I'll pull that reference and show you. Um, but that, that lends some more support to this idea that very early on, um, with interpretation of what Jesus was bringing to the um bringing to the people was something entirely new, something a bre- making a break from the old. So God questions continues. They say, some people came to Jesus and asked him why his disciples did not fast like the Pharisees and those of John's disciples who had remained loyal to the Pharisaic traditions, right? So that, again, that's those are just details from the text that we would pick up if we were to read all three texts uh, side by side. Now, Jesus' response is given in three short parables. All right, so let's uh, continue reading gotquestions.org. The first one, they say, is a parable of a bridegroom with his groomsmen at a wedding feast. Jesus' point is that fasting during the wedding feast is pointless. I don't need to stop and uh, explain most of this. It's self-explanatory, so I'll just keep reading the, their um, answer. In this story, Jesus, the bridegroom, Jesus is the bridegroom, and while he's present in this world, it is a time of celebration because he is the fulfillment of their messianic prophecies. Now, again, let me pause. I will pause and interject just briefly, briefly. The idea that Yeshua is the bridegroom and that Israel is the bride was a was a well-established theme by Yeshua's day, and the fact that Christian commentators um, in our modern time have picked up on that, I think is accurate. Um, I don't think it's wrong to uh, interpret Yeshua's statement that way. I, I'm, I'm in full agreement with, with that. All right. The first part of the parable, there's three parables, if we can list them as one, two, three. The wedding feast one, I'm in 100% agreement that Yeshua is this, in fact, um, uh, bridegroom that is um, um, implied in the parable itself. The only disagreement I would have would be Jewish commentators who don't accept Yeshua as the Messiah, right? So there would be my disagreement with Judaism as a religion. Um, I think they've gone astray. They rejected Yeshua back in the first century as as a whole. We know not every Jew rejected him, right? There were many, many thousands of Jews who believed that Yeshua was the Messiah, many of them actually priests. But um, nevertheless, um, it didn't stop 
um, rabbinic Judaism from forming a religion very early on that was in contradistinction to everything Jesus had to offer and um, in, in full rejection of Christianity, etc., etc. So we could say the beginning of the othering happened at the, on the Jewish side of the house very early on, and the animosity, if you could describe it that way, between the two groups, Judaism and Christianity, right, as, a, as two um, competing religions, was a very, very early establishment, a very early um, um, occurrence in the very, very early stages of, of, of early Christianity and things like that. God questions continues. They say Jesus himself said that he came to fulfill the law. Now notice they're going to start getting into their idea of replacement theology. Now, they don't they didn't use the word replacement here. They said Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. They didn't say that Jesus said he came to replace the law. I don't know of many pastors who would outright um, articulate it that way. But the idea of replacing the law of Moses with the law of Christ, the idea of replacing Judaism with Christianity, the idea of replacing the Jews with the church, etc., etc., all of that is now firmly established in historic Christianity by our time. I mean, it had already begun um, forming its kind of um, uh, seedbeds uh, very early on, you know, with Marcion and uh, the heretical statements that the Old Testament's no longer relevant and things like that. But um, God questions says, Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law. Now, in and of itself, that's an innocent statement that that we could say is actually even equivocation, right? It's, it's ambiguous enough because it hinges on that word fulfill. How do you interpret the word fulfill, right, in his statement, and then their quote from Matthew 5, 17. So the ambiguity or the equivocation of the word fulfill allows for messianics to say, no, fulfill means that he would bring to its fullest expression and implementation, allowing us to actually do the law the proper way that it was intended to be done. That's how we interpret the word fulfill. However, if you're of the impression and um, interpretation that the law of Moses has been set aside and relaxed and be replaced by a new law, then the equivocation on the word fulfill allows you to spin it into a nuance that says fulfill means that it was prophesied that um, Jesus would come and um, uh, bring it to its completion. That's what the word fulfill means for those uh, of that particular camp. So um, just depends on the word fulfill and your interpretation of it, right? They conclude by saying, at least in this first paragraph, they say to continue fasting with Jesus present is akin to fasting and being mournful during a wedding celebration in which the groom is present. And again, leaving off on that note with that first example about the wedding, well then it is apparent that Yeshua is trying to get those who question them to understand that look at me, I am the reason to rejoice. I am the reason to turn your mourning into rejoicing, to turn your fasting into feasting. And again, since fasting, and I'm closing with this, since fasting in and of itself was something that was not really commanded in the Torah, to have Yeshua come and say, let's bring your tradition of fasting um, to an end, not that fasting in and of itself was, was disobedient to the Torah, that's not what I'm trying to say, but the fact that Yeshua was trying to say, look, I'm introducing a new tradition, and it's based on my fulfillment of the fact that God, my Father, promised to bring to Israel their long-awaited Messiah. Well, take a look at me. Look at me. Here I am, right? You've been waiting? Wait no longer. 
Here I am, right? Receive me. And therefore, let's stop fasting and mourning. Let's start feasting and rejoicing, right? Let's feast on the goodness of God's mercy and on the Father's faithfulness uh, uh, to his promises that he has brought the long-awaited Redeemer to Israel. Let's rejoice in that fact together, right? That's what Yeshua is trying to communicate. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom is present. Let's rejoice. So we'll conclude our study tonight on that note. We'll pick this up next week with gotquestions.org and finish looking at their own answer to this particular question. But that'll do it for um, um, ex- uh, examine, examination of Matthew 9, 14 through 17, Judaism v. Christianity. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation The Harvest, Kehilat Tunuvah. You can find us online at graftedin.com, and we'd love to have you join us in person for our live Saturday services. And if not, at least head on out to our website and uh, pick up our um, teachings on our YouTube channel and click on the uh, the YouTube video that you can see on your screen right now. I also have my own um, uh, Torah teaching website at uh, tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com, that I would be delighted for you to visit when you get a chance. Make sure you bookmark this website. Um, lots of resources for you to engage in, most of it written, but these days I'm turning a lot of them, in, a lot of my written commentaries uh, into um, YouTube videos or into iTunes podcasts and things like that. I also have a... Um, a YouTube channel that uh, I make available for you. I update, I update um, the channel daily. It actually, it's maybe even twice a day. Two videos every day that I upload. So be sure to check me out on uh, YouTube.com forward slash c forward slash Tetsi Torah Ministries, and be sure to engage in the um, the the, uh, the resource by clicking on. Um, the uh, subscribe button and clicking on the um, the bell for notifications and the thumbs up and leaving comments and um, leaving um, uh, you know uh, sharing the content with your friends and family members in your social media circles and things like that. Okay, these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Let's give you some just brief. Um, uh, logistical details. This is episode no one, number 175 for March 26th, 2022. We meet each Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. So if you'd like to catch us live, uh, make sure you set your clock against the CST um, time zone and you'll be able to join us. Each top, uh, each hour-long show is broken up into two 30-minute segments. We just finished the Matthew 9, 14 through 17, are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? That was part seven that we looked at. We're ready to turn to segment two, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Uh, paper three, who or what is the Holy Spirit, part 107 tonight. And if we have time, sometimes we don't, but if we have time, we'll look at the question, is it unlawful for Jews to keep company with Gentiles per Acts 10:28. So I hope you can stick around near the end of my live study for that video if we in fact air it. I, I try my best to air it uh, to get it uploaded, but sometimes I run out of time uh, per the hour-long study and I don't get it aired, so I apologize. If not, you can always catch the video by clicking on the link that you see on my website right now, thetatesatora.com. If you were to click that link, it would launch a separate tab or a separate window on your device and it would just uh, start playing the uh, the YouTube video in that separate window or tab, okay? 
Some important details, um, we meet via Skype every week, so if you can get access to Skype, uh, whatever you do on your device, that's the proper way to do it. If you click that blue link that you see on my screen right now, it will actually launch Skype in your web browser if you're using a, a desktop or a laptop computer. And so that's the easiest way to join us week after week. So we hope you can join us one of these Saturday afternoons from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. And then one last uh, detail. Um, I'm always uh, making a, a resource available, making an opportunity available for you to sow into my ministry and to help me out during this difficult time where I'm still struggling financially. And this is the place on my website to be able to do that, the little yellow donate button. But I, I want to just, again, emphasize that I'm so so very, very, very thankful for those of you who have uh, given to my ministry and continue to pour into my ministry and to help me stay afloat during this difficult time. Uh, just many blessings and thank yous going out to you. Uh, I don't know what, uh, how else I can thank you other than verbally telling you thank you and to continue to make these resources available to the best of my ability free of charge. So um, as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. And let's conclude our section on the um, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Latter-day Saints, the, uh, the filioque debate. We've been talking about that. I probably spent more time than I really should have because most of evangelical Christians aren't really... Um, interested in that particular topic. Most of us don't even know what the filioque debate is even about, right? Many evangelical Christians are not that um, interested in um, following the great schism between the uh, the Church of the West, aka the Catholics, and the Church of the East, aka the Greek Orthodox or the Western or the, the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox, or something to that effect. Uh, Latin Church versus Greek Church, whatever terminology you wanted to use to describe it. Um, uh, in modern um, evangelical Protestant circles, that's just a topic that's not of, of um, importance to us. And so we're not really um, going to take a side when it comes to the filioque debate. If we do take a side, because Protestantism is kind of an offshoot of, of Catholicism, if you read the explanation of the Catholic Church, the Western Church, on the, the procession of the Holy Spirit, that's the filioque debate. Um, you know, who sends the Holy Spirit? Is it the Father or is it the Father and the Son? The Catholic answer is, of course, it's Father and Son in this mystery of the Trinity where the Son is eternal with God the Father in a mysterious way, um, you know, at, at the God level, and therefore it's it's entirely allowable to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son as well. The, the Eastern Church, of course, took... took um, umbrage with that or took issue with that um, because they say it kind of uh, infringed on God the Father's identity as the Father alone, the Arche, the source, the, the chief principle from which uh, even the Trinity itself uh, um, originates, or uh, the, you know, the, the, the idea of God uh, is rooted in the Father alone. So um, we're drawing this part to a close. Um, we looked at um, some definitions of the Holy Spirit and Trinity from uh, Latter-day Saints. We use the uh, the um, social Trinitarianism model uh, to look at that. I've been flashing this uh, these two um, triangles on the screen, um, where one triangle is uh, inverted. Right, it's kind of what we look at as upside down, where the flat part is on the top 
and the point is on the bottom, and that is the Catholic model, where Father and Son are, are on the top, and the Holy Spirit's on the bottom at the point. And we, we compare that to the Orthodox triangle, which is the right side up. That doesn't mean it's the right way. It just means it's the it's the orientation is the way we normally think of when we think of triangles, where the base is at the bottom, the point is the top, kind of the pyramid shape, and the point at the top is the Father, and the two points left and right on the base are Son and Holy Spirit. And that describes more or less the starting points of their theological uh, Trinitarian aspect. In the end, as Protestants, I think most of us just look at those two triangles and go, what's the big deal? They both have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're both Trinitarian models, and therefore, um, it's kind of just... Um, splitting hairs or you know it's kind of just uh, uh you know um uh what do we say playing with words when we're talking about the big differences between those two but um uh, i i don't want to minimize the theological differences that these two church groups have but we did look at that and so let me just read this concluding paragraph we'll jump into the next section i say in my um uh commentary so in conclusion Right. In conclusion to the section on the Filioque, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Latter-day Saints, and the probable categorization, categorization of the Latter-day Saints under the model known as social Trinitarianism, which I say is a model that emphasizes the threeness of God, yet runs the risk of failing to fully affirm the oneness of God. So we're talking about a Trinitarian model that, um, as far as I can ascertain, um, when I read through the Latter-day Saints theology, is not entirely accurate according to the biblical data that's given to us. Um, Again, there's enough biblical information when we talk about Trinity for us to form conclusions and even um, convictions on who and what God is. But unfortunately, because of the additional amount of ambiguity in the text or equivocation on certain words like the word God and three and the fact that the word Trinity itself doesn't even show up in the scriptures, the fact that there are passages that um, um, demonstrate uh ontological slash economic uh, realities of God, and we don't have um, further information um, illuminated to us, right? In other words, God gives us enough information so that we can form some conclusions, but we don't have all of the details. Right? If we did have all the details, we wouldn't have so many disagreements on the discussions on the issues of Trinity. But there's kind of a, a, a built-in information limitation aspect to the text so that it, it causes us to have to stop and think. Um, I'm fond of reminding myself that Dr. Dale Tuggy, who himself, he himself is a, um, a professing Unitarian Christian, right? So he's not Trinitarian, but as far as I can tell, he's a genuine believer and he's spirit-filled. So I really appreciate his teachings, even though I'm in, in disagreement over his view on Trinity. But his podcast... Um, uh, one of their catchphrases or, or um, uh, bumper sticker slogans, as it were, is, do you love God enough to think about him? And I like the idea. It's kind of a philosophical statement. And indeed, uh, Dr. Dale Tuggy is a analytic theologian, right? More philosophical than he is, than he is theological, more philosophical and analytical than he is, say, um, um, 
pastoral or anything like that. A little bit too theological and analytical for most people. But nevertheless, when he asks people, do you love God enough to think about him? What he's, try- what he's trying to remind us is, is that God commands us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might in the Hebrew. But the Greek adds one more. It says, with all of our mind. So the idea that God should be thought about. Let's engage in thinking about God, right, from the ontological perspective of who God is and what God is, as well as from the economic perspective of how he interacts with his creation, right? Both of those are important for us to think about. And when we say think, it means it's okay to engage in hashkafa in the Hebrew or philosophy from time to time. Um, so don't be too harsh. Philosophy and, and, and um, theology are not enemies of one another. So what I say in my commentary is that what I sought to do is to wish to make Protestant evangelical Christians aware of the theological attraction that Latter-day Saints' pneumatology, which is a study on the Holy Spirit, what their particular take on the Holy Spirit might present to unsuspecting Christians seeking acceptance and fellowship from a wider circle of Christian quote-unquote groups that they might encounter on an everyday basis. So, um, when you're out and about and you meet other people who say that they are Christian, you have you meet people from any number of denominational backgrounds. And in that respect, Latter-day Saints, along with Jehovah's Witnesses, are simply another denomination of Christianity. But most of us in Protestant evangelical circles have been taught that there are some denominational forms of Christianity that, that tip the limit on what is known as orthodoxy and fall into the category of either heresy or cult. And last time I checked, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism, Latter-day Saints, fall into that category of cult and uh, non-Christian, or say quasi-Christian or um, something to that effect. Now, of course, I know those terms are pejorative, and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Latter-day Saints wouldn't wouldn't take too well to being called cults. They are aware of the fact that they that they wear that label and that stigma, but they they're seeking to erase that. And so I think part of their effort is seen in the fact that when we look at their theology, they're trying to make their theology as palatable and as acceptable as online with mainstream Christian Orthodox theology so as to say, look, we're no different than what you guys say, and look, well, here's what we believe, it's biblically based, it's, it's, it's scripturally rooted, and so why are you rejecting us? Let's fellowship together. In fact, why don't you come and join our church and, you know, down that path you go. And so I'm here to tell you, be careful, be aware, be um, forewarned. Their theology is not the same as mainstream Protestant evangelical or even Catholic or Orthodox theology, right? They're views of Trinity are grossly skewed, um, biblically inaccurate, scripturally unsound, and um, I reject their view of Trinity. Um, They have a model that I reject, that I think is uh, uh, unbiblical, and so uh, you wouldn't know it unless you read through their information or you just took the word of your own pastor who told you, hey, steer clear of those guys. You know, they come knocking on your door, just politely turn them away. Well, um, yeah, sometimes that's what you have to do. So uh, my goal was not to kind of uh, look down on them too harshly, but just to recognize that, hey, um, 
the theology that they are presenting, as well-meaning as it may come across, and as innocent as it may look, and as close to biblically accurate as it may come across, it's not, right? Um, I go on to say in my uh, final paragraph here, the following scenario is not impossible to imagine, so uh, follow along with me, all right? Your average Protestant churchgoer becomes confused and unconvinced about historic mainstream, what we would call orthodox with a small o, Christian teachings on Trinity, which is not unimaginable. There are quite a number of Christians that I've encountered either in real life or via the um, uh, the mechanism of the internet, like uh, chatting or comments on YouTube or emails or things like that, um, that are kind of disillusioned with Trinity these days, right? It's kind of vogue to take shots at the Trinity and show how illogical it is, how, you know, one plus one plus one can equal one, or, you know, how, show how that God didn't say that he was three, or that the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible, or Jesus never called himself God with those very statements, right? I am God. And and so, it's kind of, um, popular to take shots at the Trinity and show how um, this is a, an invention of the Catholic Church. And since we Protestants made a break from Catholic, from Catholicism, maybe we just should take a break, make a break from Trinity as well, if we're going to be more biblically accurate, right? So um, so I continue to say that uh, even though the example that I'm sharing, right, the Protestant in my, in my example, even though they're unlikely to immediately run into the arms of an Eastern Orthodox Church, right, most Protestants I know are not attracted to Eastern Orthodoxy. There are some, right? There are some Protestant evangelicals who make the break from their own denomination and go into Eastern Orthodoxy. I'm, I'm trying to think of um, Dr. Um, uh, Hank Hanagram. If you guys remember the Bible Answer Man from years gone by, I grew up listening to him answer questions. He's kind of like the the uh, radio version of GotQuestions.org, one of the original Bible Answer Man. Um, I think he was the original guy to use that um, uh, moniker, that that um, nickname, the Bible Answer Man. But uh, Hank Hanagram. He would, you know, you could call into his radio show. He had a talk show, and he you would call in, and he would answer Bible uh, questions, right? Very knowledgeable guy, and he um, uh, he was always known to be a, an evangelical Protestant um, leaning Christian. But as of late, I, if I remember right, he um, joined the Eastern Orthodox Church. He embraced Orthodoxy. Most of us are not going to go that path, but he did. Um, Speaking of this example, my sample Protestant in my uh, little story here, right? Not a real person, just a made-up person, but could be a real person. Then they just might find what I call pseudo comfort and false affirmation, quote unquote, in the what I call unbiblical teachings of some forms of Unitarianism. Right again, it's very popular, as far as I can tell. Many Protestants who at least are embracing the Hebraic roots are. Uh, being um, challenged with this idea of, well, if you're going to embrace your Hebraic roots and, and kind of make a break from Christianity and start um, shake, holding hands with Judaism, then you need to start rethinking Trinity as well. And so it's unfortunate that many Messianics are also making a break with Trinity and they're embracing Unitarian aspects. So um, they embrace some forms of Unitarianism uh, that they read about online or worse, I say in my um, uh, commentary here, they might have a, a visit 
from a friendly neighborhood door-knocking cult member, right? All of that's in quote, friendly neighborhood door-knocking cult member. That's in quotes as well. Um, the likes of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Latter-day Saints, right? The Mormons. So these are the people that knock on your doors. It is a known fact that Catholics, Orthodox, Messianics, um, and certainly mainstream rabbinic Jews, they aren't as popularly known as knocking on doors, right? Nine times out of ten, if someone knocks on your door, it's going to be a Jehovah's Witness or, or Latter-day Saint uh, Christian. Um, it might be um, your, your First Baptist um, uh, Christian of the denomination, you know, going around knocking on doors. But it's not, it's, it's not likely to be um, a Pentecostal or, uh, uh, you know, Lutheran or um, uh, Methodist or some of the other Christian denominations aren't known very widely for knocking on doors. And rabbinic Judaism isn't known for knocking on doors either. And that kind of spills over into Messianic Judaism. I, I don't know very many door-knocking um, ministries. But Latter-day Saints and Jehovah's Witnesses, they certainly are known to knock on your door. So uh, it's no secret there. Not that there's anything wrong with knocking on doors. Actually, uh, I, I kind of envy their approach. I mean, they're, they're out actively seeking converts and sharing the gospel. I mean, Yeshua did tell us to go two by two and to um, uh, take the gospel, right, around the world. So, I mean, you could say that they're actually doing something right, right? You know, Let's let's actually perhaps give them uh, some credit where credit's due. But nevertheless, I say in my uh, uh, statement, and given those latter two groups' positions on Trinity, right, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right, we already know that um, they neither group has a Trinity model that's acceptable by um, Orthodox with a small O Christian standards. Um, both of them have some some oddly described. Um, views on the the nature of God, the ontology of God, the makeup of God. So we're either talking about an outright rejection of Trinity or a kind of a warped view of of God and His persons. Um, so given that reality, then they just that my my unsuspecting Protestant Christian example here, he must he just might find himself or themselves in a worse off place than they began with when they left their mainstream Protestant evangelical trinity-believing church, oy vey, right? So that's one of the reasons why I had this discussion, is to kind of make us aware of these particular realities. Let's turn now to section number five, which is entitled, Who or What is the Holy Spirit? Rabbinic Jewish Thoughts from the Jewish Encyclopedia. These are my own comments. Let's start out uh, here. I say... This particular section of my Holy Spirit commentary will be quite short since mainstream Jewish views on this topic itself are quite succinct and to the point in my uh, understanding. I continue. Rabbinic Judaism, which is the branch that identifies itself over and against Messianic Judaism and Evangelical Christianity, right? So um, they are definitely the, the other position. Uh, they take what I like to identify as a, quote, foundational, end quote, aspect on this question of who or what is the Holy Spirit. Now, I say a foundational in both a positive and a negative way. 
It's positive in the sense that you always want to go back to the foundational aspects of Scripture and start there whenever you're studying any particular topic, right? You want to know what the Bible says first, and you want to start with the earliest sources if you can. Start from the earliest parts of the Bible and work your way towards the later parts. That's what I mean by foundational in a positive way. However, there's a negative way to spin this as well. If you're only focus on foundational and you don't move past foundation and allow your theology to build on itself in the progressive nature of the Bible, the way the Bible progressively reveals revelation to us as time progressed, as um, details emerged, as God revealed himself more and more to his people in this progressive fashion. If you don't allow your theology to uh, build on itself, you know, starting with the foundation and then build on top of that, well, then your theology is going to end up being short-sighted. It's going to be um, stunted in its growth. It's not going to move beyond foundational. And so that's a negative aspect of foundation. And that's precisely what rabbinic Judaism has done. They take the foundational parts of our Bible right, the Torah and the writings and the prophets, the Tanakh, right, um, the Torah, the prophets and the writings, which is what the acronym Tanakh stands for, the TNK, and they take that and they stop. They don't allow their theology to include the later apostolic writings, the continued revelation of God to his people through the person and work of Yeshua and the Holy Spirit following the book of Acts and, and, and later and Paul's writings. They reject all of that later revelation and they only retain the foundational quote-unquote parts of the Bible. Now, of course, in reality, we know they build on top of that with their extra-biblical, um, rabbinical um, uh, traditions, Talmudic, uh, Midrashic, um, you know, um, esoteric, uh, and all that other nonsense gets built on top of the foundations to the point that you don't even know what the foundation looks like anymore. It's all muddied and clouded by their own man's uh, opinions and all that other stuff. And if you've ever read any rabbinic writings, you know it's very unfortunate that you can hardly even get to the real truth of what the Bible says anymore because it's there's so much rabbi said in the name of rabbi who said in the name of rabbi who quoted in the name of rabbi right and you're thinking well what really did the bible say and oftentimes you can't tell what the bible said anymore because rabbi so-and-so in the name of rabbi so-and-so etc 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 right so it's all the traditions that have clouded the truth so it's even unfortunate that foundation is they stop at that they, they've committed two errors not only do they not allow foundation to be built upon with later revelation but rabbinic judaism also piles on heaps on um uh, copious amounts of tradition on tradition on tradition on fences on fences on fences on tradition on tradition on fences on interpretation on you know you guys get the idea all right so um, so that's the approach that they take when it comes to um, Holy Spirit. So um, I actually say in my commentary, I say foundational because much of their articulated interpretations that we're going to be reading about are rooted in the very scriptures that Orthodox, with a small o, Trinitarian Christians hold to be infallible as well, right? We're both using the same initial foundational resources when it comes to um, Bible. Uh, let's see how far. Let's just read this first paragraph and then we'll call it quits tonight. What is more, I say in this new section, since our understanding of Trinitarian doctrine, we're talking about Orthodox Christians now, since our doctrine comes firstly from the Tanakh, as it gave rise to the Apostolic Scriptures, right? We take the foundation and we allow God's um, theology and God 
God's further revelation to be built upon that. And that is the way we, we should be doing it, right? That's that's the accurate and safe way um, to build your biblical theology. Then uh, I say it only makes logical sense that historic Jewish thought should, at times I say, closely resemble some, not all, but some of the main points of um, Christian thought in regard to matters of ontology, which, what did we say ontology was again? It's this branch of metaphysics that deals with the nature of things, uh, describing the makeup or the, the origin or the composition or how things are put together, to use air quotes. So when we're talking about God, we're asking the question of how is it that one nature can become two natures, right? How is it that the hypostatic union is possible? How is it that God who's one can express himself as three and yet still be one, right? How can God be God, and Jesus be God, and the Holy Spirit be God, and yet there's only one God? So those are ontological questions and discussions, right? So when we're talking about um, uh, ontology and uh, pneumatology, we're talking about how can the Holy Spirit fit into the Godhead? Remember, um, uh, Unitarians and Oneness Pentecostals and Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Latter-day Saints and Iglesia de Cristo, and I'm going to put a little list on the screen. You you guys can see it in post-production. In my live class, you can't see it, but um, right, there's this this kind of laundry list that I borrowed from Wikipedia of all these uh, non-Trinitarian groups that are popular these days. And um, you remember, rabbinic Judaism, even though they're not on the list, they fall into the same category of non-Trinitarian theological perspectives. So when we're talking about ontology and God and pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, basic Unitarian perspective is that the Holy Spirit is either uh, another name for God himself, right, because God is a spirit, or the Holy Spirit is some impersonal force or active element that that God can um, zap people with, or He can um, uh, issue, He can send it forth like like a delivery boy. Um, but it's still this this thing, this tool that gets that's in God's uh, tool bag, uh, but it's not God. And notice I'm saying it's not God. Uh, whereas in Trinity models, we say that no, the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a person. He's a he. And he is the third person of the Trinity, even though we can't fully explain how that's possible. All right, so I conclude by saying to be sure, the oft-proclaimed, quote, one God of the Jews, end quote, is, in point of fact, we need to remind ourselves, the very same exclusive, quote, one God of the Christians, end quote, right? So, if we, if we at least give credit where credit's due, as I'm drawing this part of my study to a close, even though we as Protestant Christians and Orthodox Christians and Catholic Christians and, and all these other non-Rabbinic Christians, even though we, we as Christians are going to have our, our sharp disagreements with Rabbinic Judaism, in the end, we have to at least acknowledge the fact that the God that they claim to serve is the very God that we claim to serve. Now, whether or not we really truly are saving and serving the same God, or Rabbinic Judaism is serving a God of their own making, right? A God of um, their own uh, idolatry. Well, that remains to be seen, and um, we could have discussions along those lines. But in on paper, or in spoken form, or in, in, in general practice, they speak of God using the same scriptures that we use, and thus um, the, the conversation is actually geared towards us understanding, if from a third-party perspective, um, that uh, it's the same God that we're having this discussion about. It's just a difference of agreement on, on his makeup, his definitions, his rules, his functions, etc., etc. That's in contradistinction to, say, the 
uh, Islamic God or the Muslim God, you know, Allah, the God that they describe is not the same God that we Christians or even we Jews describe, right? They may say, well, it is the same God, it's just a different name. But if you read through their uh, Islamic scriptures and their their, their prophets' writings and and uh, you know the Quran and and all of their other um, um, holy books and such, you'll begin to realize that the God that they describe is not the same God. So that's what I mean by the one God of the Jews is, in point of fact, the very same exclusive one God of the Christians. And that'll do it for um, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to our liturgy for tonight. We won't wax too long on the liturgy. Um, since Passover is right around the corner, what I'm going to begin to do is entertain um, a discussion on uh, Exodus chapter 13, the first 16 verses, and along with um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul talks about uh, keeping the feast of Passover. And so um, this first part from the Torah, Exodus, is going to be a narrative where God describes um, responsibilities and duties of Israel to uh, remember the time period of Passover and the exodus from Egypt and things like that. We'll start by reading the first 10 verses in English. Eventually, we'll get to all 16 verses, but tonight for our liturgy, we're only going to read the English first 10 verses, and then I'll read the English of the Corinthians passage, and I'll give some very, very light commentary on both of those. Um, and then next week, we'll start looking at the Hebrew. All right, so starting in uh, verse 1 uh, from the English Standard Version, uh, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, verse 2, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Verse 3, then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Verse 4, today in the month of Abib you are going out. Verse 5, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Of course, he's talking about Passover, right? Verse 6, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Remember, Passover and unleavened bread are back to back. They're they're joined to, to, to one another. They're coterminous um, uh, festivals. So uh, to speak of keeping the Passover by describing it about eating unleavened bread is basically the same thing. It's a week-long uh, celebration. Verse 17, as we see here, unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, right? Why are we keeping this? This is kind of reminiscent of the four questions, um, you know, the Manishna that we uh, recite during the Passover Seder, uh, the, Hag the, uh, the Haggadah, uh, during that time where the son asks, you know, hey, why are we doing all these? Why is this night different from all other nights? And why do we celebrate this? This is kind of within that same spirit of um, make sure you tell your sons on that day, this is why we're doing the things that we're doing. Uh, verse 9, um, Moshe says, And it shall be to you, or God speaking through Moshe, it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt 
And then the concluding verse in verse 10, you shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. And in the Hebrew, there's actually a, um, a paragraph break at this point, which is why I'm going to stop at verse 10 in our liturgy. We'll pick this up next week uh, and continue with verse 11 through 16, and then eventually we'll return to the Hebrew. But that'll do it for the English rendering for now. No Hebrew or Greek tonight. The liturgy will be really light. Let's turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and look at what Paul has to say about this particular feast. It's popularly taught in Christian circles that Passover is no longer relevant. The Sabbath is no longer relevant. The law of Moses is no longer relevant. We as Christians don't have to keep those things anymore. They're part of the ceremonial aspects of the law that have been done away with. But is the law really done away with? Are we truly no longer under the law, but under grace? Has the law of Moses been replaced by the law of Christ? Has Judaism been replaced by Christianity? Remember what we talked about in our um, Matthew 9, uh, 14 through 17 study, Judaism v. Christianity, the whole idea of replacement theology and supersessionism. Is that really the way to go? Well, let's see what Paul has to say about this, those particular questions. Picking up our um, reading in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, ESV, English, quote, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I started in this verse right in the middle of the context because he starts using this word leaven. Remember, the theme, one of the themes of Passover is unleavened products, unleavened bread. And the idea that leaven represents sin in the Bible is a well-known theme that Paul picks up on as well. In fact, he continues in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be, speaking of people, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Again, he's making this midrash based on the understanding that leaven in the Bible represents sin, even though leavening the agent itself is not really wrong, right? I mean, without leaven, you couldn't have puffy bread. You take out the leaven, and what you end up with are really flat crackers, right? Those those crackers that we eat during Passover week. Um, matzah is what we call it. So there's nothing inherently wrong with leaven if you want it to be in the product, if you want it to make your bread puffy, right? We need it for those nice, um, uh, uh, puffy, crispy cream donuts that we're so <laughs> fond of eating, right? As my voice breaks in weakness, because yes, that is a weakness of mine, is crispy cream donuts, especially the glazed ones. So, but during Passover week, nah, Ariel, no crispy cream donuts, right? Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Well, he's not talking about just donuts or bread. He's talking about people now. So he's making the application spiritually to leaven being sin. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In verse 8, which is the final verse in our liturgy for tonight for, from the New Testament, Paul says, Let us therefore, right, based on this established idea, fact, that Jesus, Yeshua, is our unleavened bread. He's that bread come down from heaven that we have partaken of if we, in fact, are genuine members of the body and believers and partakers with him. We call him Lord. Then he is that unleavened bread in our lives. And therefore, 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 right, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, my old pastor used to say, you should stop and ask yourself the question, what is it there for, right? <laughs> so Paul says, let us therefore, so it's based on this application or truth of um, Passover and unleavened bread, therefore let us celebrate the festival. And I might add that the word celebrate in the Greek, um, as you can pick it up in English, is a present tense verb, right? Meaning it's something that we should do. 
Um, it, and in the Greek, present tense, re, present tense represents something that is uh, that can sometimes be represented by a participle, by an ing. Therefore, let us be celebrating the feast, is what I can say. Uh, it doesn't always have to come across that way. It just depends on the other aspects of the Greek. But without getting too technical, Paul didn't say, let us therefore remember that when we used to celebrate the feast before Jesus came, Right, pause, or, or uh, um, you know, uh, stop and let, let let the silence kind of kick in. He didn't describe something that used to take place before we came to Messiah, but now that we're in Jesus, we no longer have to keep. This is post-resurrection, right? Jesus has already come and gone. Paul is now writing to a group of people who understand that Jesus has come and gone and that they're waiting for him to return again. And it's within that context that he says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. And then he describes how to keep it. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. Again, he's he's drawing a spiritual example. Obviously, they wouldn't keep it with physical leaven either, right? That's the given, right? He's not saying that you don't have to get rid of the leaven in your homes like Moses said in in Exodus that we read about. No, that's the given. That's the understanding. Of course, we're going to get rid of the leaven in our homes, but there's a deeper spiritual picture that is at work here that God was trying to communicate to Israel all along. Remember, the, the Old Testament is like types and shadows of the Messiah, and it's it, one of its purposes was, to give in, was given to us to teach us about the spiritual truths of the Messiah. And so the leaven of malice and evil is represented by the leaven in the bread, right? This is the thing we have to get rid of. So Paul says, keep your festival not with old leaven or not with the old man, the old manner of living, the old lifestyle, the old um, way of thinking, right? The, 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 um, depraved way that you used to approach the world and approach God. But he says, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this is a changed mind, a changed heart, a changed spirit that can only take place by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And that's the way we're going to celebrate our festivals. In other words, we're going to keep us keep the feast we're still going to keep it but we're going to keep it in a new way that's not entirely different looking in the on the outside but it is entirely different looking on the inside but amidst all of those theological truths that we could build on this right the malice the malice the leaven of malice and evil and the unleavened bread sincere truth we could wax very long and eloquently about how this is the reality that we have in messiah but amidst all of that paul says therefore let us celebrate the festival and that's the part that many christians miss but that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight Let's turn to the video, watch the video, and when we're finished with the video, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright Date Torah Ministries 2015. All rights reserved. Here's our question, and it's a long one. Why did Peter in Acts 10.28 say that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation? Alright, here's our answer. If the rabbinic literature that survived the destruction of the Second Temple is any indication of the pattern of religious life in first century Israel, then the Judaisms of Peter's day held to the common belief that Jewish Israel held an exclusive place among the righteous peoples of the earth. 
the poison of ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism that permeated the first century Jewish society erected a wall of separation between your average Jew and your average Gentile. Read Ephesians 2.14 with this in mind. Because of this social view, many religious Jews sought to keep a measured distance away from most Gentiles, believing the average Gentile to be intrinsically unclean, that is, capable of transmitting ritual impurity to Jews and or leading Jews away into idolatry. A careful reading of the Greek of Acts 10 and Peter's conversation with God will show that this simple fisherman was also blinded by the prevailing Jewish traditions and bylaws that sought to avoid Gentiles at all costs. It would take the Spirit of God to open Peter's eyes to the truth that in Yeshua, Jesus, Gentiles too can be cleansed by the power of the Messiah's blood. Read Acts 10, 34, 35, as well as 43. At face value, the verse indeed seems to have Peter affirming a fact that is well known, even among the Gentiles, that it is unlawful for Jews to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, i.e. the Gentiles. But if this is true, by whose authority could Peter make such a statement? God? The Jews? Does the Bible forbid Jews from associating with Gentiles? Let's dig a bit deeper to find out. In Acts 10.28, the Greek word for unlawful is athematos, and it's found only in two places in the Apostolic Scriptures, that is, at Acts 10.28 and 1 Peter 4.3. It is a composite of two Greek words, the Greek word tithemi, meaning to set, to put in place, or to set forth, to establish, and then we've got the article, the a, ah, or a, rendering the word tithemi into its negative value. Thus, uh, we can look this up in Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary. This means that athematos does convey the general notion of unlawful, but context must determine whose law is lending the authority. The adjective athematos refers to that which, although not written down, is simply socially unacceptable, viz. taboo, but certainly not forbidden by Mosaic law. Most translations use unlawful or something similar, implying God's law, but this implication would be incorrect. In my understanding of this passage, David Stern's complete Jewish Bible is a better translation of this verse. It reads, quote, He said to them, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean, end quote. I don't think unlawful is the best translation, because God's law does not forbid Jew to Gentile association. It is always best to go back to the original context and social setting of a passage to further investigate the strengths and weaknesses of any given translation. So what are our conclusions? The Torah, the Law of Moses, never prohibits Jews from associating with or visiting anyone of another nation. This statement of Peter's reflects the ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism baggage that the Torah communities of his day had engineered, baggage not uncommon among people groups who are marginalized. In other words, Peter was just regurgitating the standard mantra of his day. This did not excuse his error which is why God went through all the trouble to send him the vision in the first place. In the end, the message of the Acts 10 vision is crystal clear. Gentiles in Yeshua are not intrinsically unclean, 
like the first century Judaisms were professing. They, like all men, have been created in God's image, and as such, can be viewed as defiled by the stain of sin, in need of cleansing. Peter needed to understand that non-Jews were not intrinsically unclean simply because they were Gentiles. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I'm thankful for the um, relevancy and the truth of your words. I know that given the um, opportunity to press into the Spirit, I can allow the Spirit to activate the words on my heart and on my mind and on my soul and to cause me to uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness and to implement the words, to put them into practice as I, con- as I continue to say no to sin, no to the leaven of malice and evil, and continue to say yes to the, um, the sincerity and truth of who Messiah is in my life. Thank you for these opportunities that you present to us. Thank you for the season of Passover that is upon us that we are looking with expectation towards. Uh, thank you that you have commanded us to uh, remember these days and to engage in these days as we worship our Messiah in sincerity and in truth, remembering who he is and what he has done for us, using these days to bring to our recollection those very truths. Strengthen us, Lord, during these last and evil days. Continue to protect us from the pandemic that still rages on around us and give us a sense that you are providing for us even though we are suffering uh, in hardships, many of us uh, unemployed or furloughed or or um, dealing with the, the, the ridiculously high gas prices and the inflation and and all of the other hardships that are taking place around the world. Um, Money is tight. We know it's tight, but guess what, Lord? You own the cattle on a thousand hills, and like the pastors always remind me, you own the hills themselves. And so we're going to look to you as our provider and trust in you despite the uh, the famine around us. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Amen.